Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Monday, April 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And the new Mario Brothers movie, or as non-Italians say, the Mario Brothers movie, came into the weekend with high expectations, bad reviews, and an IP so beloved, the studio was heard to exclaim in anticipation of box office, Mamma mia! Mamma mia! That is the original voice of Mario, Charles Martinet, as we heard him and loved him from the moment he first spoke. The latest Mario, as voiced by Chris Pratt, sounds more like this. Mamma mia. From comedy to action to rapping to having people hate him for no discernible reason, I've often thought, Chris Pratt, is there anything he can't do? And the answer is yes. A decent stereotypical Italian accent. That's a go. And it's clear that America loves stereotyping the Italian accent. The headlines, just the headlines, you have to do the work in your head to hear it, but you could hear it when you hear, for instance, Nerdbot reviewing the new movie, the Super Mario Brothers movie, It's a Just Fine, or Detroit News, Mamma Mia, the Super Mario Brothers movie is colorful fun. Film Obsessive gets both. Mamma Mia! The Super Mario Brothers movie, it's a not bad! <laughs> and then there was the Des Moines Register. A fanabla! This is Mario and his guma! Princess Peach! Now, I can say that. I'm like Mario, an Italian. And I, like Mario, am from Brooklyn. Also, like Princess Peach, I am a pesca. Principesca pesca. That would be Princess Peach in Italian. So I can say that. But I know you want to say that. Everybody wants to do a broad Italian stereotypical accent. But then you feel bad about it. You say, oh, it's insensitive. So this is why I am calling on all my fellow Italian-Americans to leverage this moment. The Super Mario Brothers movie made $204 million. That was just domestic. It's up to about $400 million U.S. and overseas. And now it is time for we Italians to tell the world, go ahead, we're not offended. Do it, a Mario accent. But, and this is the secret sauce. Oh, you like it, a sauce, eh? Italians should then not say, Hey, I don't get offended when you do my accent. Why can't I do yours? I like Bob Molly. Listen to my Rasta. No, no. I mean, Italians can say that, and they do say that all the time. I'm talking about a leverage moment. I'm talking about rebranding. Italians, we're the people open to interpretation, but we're also very sensitive to others. Italians can be sensitive. They sculpted the Pieta. They weep at operas. So now, Italians can be the go-to accent for everyone to try, but we will not insist on a quid pro quo or a calamari pro quo. You got to think big picture here, Italians. I know it's hard, or al dente, as they say. One, some benefits though. One, if everyone's doing the accent, then you will just have your run-of-the-mill Hellman's mayonnaise Americans saying mozzarella, right? Or calamar. Sometimes we even want you to say calamar, but I'm fine with calamar, right? You're doing yourselves a favor by eliminating the word mozzarella cheese from the discourse. I often hear complaints about this. But if Italians were also, when they heard someone mock another person as crazy, if they were all like, whoa, hey, hey, whoa, hey, is neurotypical. 
It's not hard. It's not like Italians don't get offended at things like insulting the Pope or insulting their mother or putting grated cheese on seafood. It's just a chance for Italians to get a little bit of a toehold in progressive spaces. They used to own that, right? Mario Cuomo and before. But now, Italians, they're all over Trump world. I mean, you got Scaramucci. All right, fine. He broke. Pat Cipollone broke also. But his real first name is Pasquale. That's my grandfather's name. You got Giuliani, you got Kellyanne Conway. Wait a minute, Kellyanne Conway? Wasn't she Kellyanne Fitzpatrick? Yeah, but the Fitzpatrick moved out when she was three and she was raised by her mom, her grandmother, her aunts, the Di Natales. And then you got the alt-right. I have been poring over the Proud Boys charging documents. On trial, you got Dominic Pezzola. You got Jeremy Bertino. You got uh, an informant on the inside, Kenneth Lazardo. They're running the Chicago Proud Boys. You got Edgar Remy del Toro de la Torre. So Italians, pretty strong on the right, but on the left, what do we have? Ungats, we got nothing. So now we very progressively welcome everyone in with an invitation to do the Mamma Mia and talk about Goombas. But then when it comes to turning it around, we, we toe the line. Hey, what, what, have a fanook, what are you saying? He is too spirit. What is the matter with you? A little respect here. What are you, the Des Moines Register? On the show today, back to Tennessee and the expelled, very soon to be reinstated, it looks like, two state legislators. What would justice and fairness look like if you're also adhering to the rules of democracy in a state like Tennessee? But first, two years after the beginnings of the pandemic, messaging still quite imperfect when it comes to things like masking, the origins of COVID, what to do now. So I turn to a very trusted voice, Donald G. McNeil Jr., former lead COVID reporter for the New York Times. We talk about messaging. We compare it to a drunken brawl where people were just screaming out different bits of advice. Let's bring it up to the present as well. Donald McNeil Jr. up next. Donald McNeil worked for the New York Times for 25 years. His last beat was COVID Reporter, a beat for which he won the Pulitzer Prize. His reporting on COVID, especially on the podcast, The Daily, was, in a word, important. Important to me, maybe important to you. It was informative, illustrative, humane. He is writing on Medium, still keeping up with what's keeping us down in the world of plagues and public health. Donald McNeil, welcome to The Gist. Thank you very much. And I should point out that the Times as a team won the Pulitzer Prize, and I, I was part of that team. You were, you were uh, a prominent part of that team, shall we say. So I first want to, I wanted to talk to you about the science a little bit, but I even want to start with public health messaging, because I think it's easy to argue about messaging, and messaging wasn't perfect, but when can it be? Is your assessment overall of the public health messaging about what to do in terms of COVID-19 and how to avoid it and what you wear and where it came from, where would you, how would you describe it? Failure, fiasco, disaster, extremely difficult task that we tried as best we could? No, it was more like a, a bar fight or a drunken brawl where everybody was screaming out different bits of advice. I mean, you had the CDC in the very beginning saying, get ready. It's not a question of if, but when this virus comes to us and we need to prepare ourselves both mentally and, you know, just 
you know, having enough medicine and food and everything in the house to go into go into isolation. They weren't calling it lockdown then, but and then you had from the White House, you had a completely different uh, point of view, which was, "Don't worry, it's all going to fade away by weather. Don't worry, it's going to be over by Easter." Don't worry, and and that dichotomy kept up all the way through, so that. Um, Yes, there was messaging on masks that absolutely changed. Yes, there was messaging on social isolation. There was messaging on hand washing. All of that stuff changed. But it didn't change because somebody was wrong or was lying in the beginning. It changed because the data changed. There were very few studies on whether masks worked at the time the pandemic began. And even now, it's hard to do a very good study because, you know, you put people in masks and they don't wear them. They pull them down under their chin and they take them out of the way to smoke or to eat or whatever and stuff. Nobody wears masks perfectly. Um, physics studies suggest that masks can be quite effective if you absolutely wear them so that you breathe through them at all times. But people don't don't always do that. So so anyway, what my point is that we, when we talk about bad messaging, it's like saying, you know, it's the media's fault. Well, you know, I'm the media. Tucker Carlson is the media. Chinese state television is the media. There's a lot of people that go into the media and we have very different opinions. And that is exactly the same thing that happened with the science is that, you know, yeah. And it sounded like masks don't work, um, you know, and the, and the virus is, uh, you know, 5% lethal to masks do work and the virus is less than 1% lethal. So, but you have to wait for more, more data to come in. And and the people who I consider responsible, people like Tony Fauci and many of the other scientific talking heads, were actually responsible. What happens is, you know, if you've ever interviewed Tony Fauci, the guy answers every question with a stream of about 500 words. And you have to be able to pierce out the dependent clauses where he's putting in the exceptions to the general he's saying. But then people only say, Fauci says wear masks. And that's it. And that becomes the headline. And all of the subtlety is is missed. So so the, the 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 messaging was a mess and and the CDC absolutely did not resist the Trump administration's um interference. I mean the the Trump administration went in and rewrote things on morbidity and mortality weekly for God's sake to make the virus sound, you know, less important than it was. That that that, that should have been resisted. You know, there should have been screams of protest. And frankly, the, you know, the head of the CDC should have been battling back against that kind of pressure. But instead, he stood there, stood there like a giant, you know, cigar store Indian saying nothing. Yeah. But the Fauci method, I don't want to pick on him too much. I have a lot of respect for him. But the way he talked, the way you described it, reminded me of another former government official, Alan Greenspan, talking nomically about where interest rates may go and the markets had to try to figure out what he was hinting at. Is that the best way for someone tasked with part of his job is public messaging? Is that the best way for him or someone in that position to communicate? Well, okay, a bunch of different answers. One, Alan Greenspan can't possibly know the future of of, of where the stock market is going to go. He can only know what he does with interest rates and what's likely to happen. And that's it's the same with viruses. You can, you know, say what we know about the virus now, but viruses mutate and they change in their lethality changes and their transmissibility changes. And, um, you know, one of the examples where supposedly Fauci lied was on the level of herd immunity, which I quoted him on. And he wasn't lying. He was say he was being asked a different question, which is, Dr. Fauci, when will it all be back to normal? You know, which is an unanswerable question. Um, 
and for a lot of reasons. One is you can't know because the virus mutates. And two, you can't know because what my definition of normal may be very different from your definition of normal. I go out in the subways and I still, I go out in the streets of New York and I still see lots of people wearing masks. And I think like, Jesus, you're outdoors. It's been three plus years of the pandemic now. Your chances of getting infected are, you know, hundreds of 1%. Why are you wearing masks? And, and, but people look at me like I'm irresponsible to be, to be asking questions like that and think I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dangerous. So I, I there, I'm sorry, this is me doing it, doing exactly what I'm saying. I'm giving you a thousand word answer for something that would be simple. The CDC should have given out much clearer messages. And and remember, there were two CDCs here. There was Robert Redfield CDC and, and there was um, Rochelle Walensky CDC. And they, they did very different things. And they tried. I mean, I under Rochelle Walensky, I think the CDC tried to get it right again and again. It's not always possible to get it right, especially the dispute over masks and reopening schools was an absolute mess. And that's because you're trying to balance two different forces there. Is it important to get kids, you know, is it important to keep kids from being infected? Well, not really, but it's important because kids have a very pretty good time with the virus, but the, all the adults that have to work in every school, the teachers, the principals, the staff members, the parents coming back and forth and stuff, they were at some risk. And and the teachers unions got involved in the in the whole mess. And so you got all, all this contradictory advice about, you know, trying to balance how much do we prevent infection versus how important is it that kids go to school? And we know that it's very important for kids to go to school. It's not important that Broadway shows come back on. It's not important that people back, get back on cruise ships again, but it's crucial we get kids back into school. And yet that turned into the biggest political mess of it all. And that was a real pity. Right. And I'm sure that if you asked, if you woke up Bill de Blasio in the middle of the night, so, and you shook him and you said, what is the real answer with kids and masks? He would say essentially what he said as mayor, which is something like, I, I know that he thinks he talked about balancing these virtues, but that's not what we heard. And then the directive or the uh, actual decree can only be, yes, we'll do it or no, we'll don't do it. And that's bound to get a lot of people upset. Well, what it really ought to be is we're, we're instituting a testing system here like they did in Germany, and we're going to reopen the schools, but we're going to test the kids often enough so that we can, we can catch an outbreak early and shut that school or that district. You know, the, the whole idea that you have to shut the entire country the minute a virus lands in San Francisco doesn't make any sense and never did. But our lack of testing absolutely crippled us for the first two months. We were a headless chicken until late March and really for months after that, because there wasn't enough testing for anything. It was enough testing to let us know that there was a problem, not enough testing, which would have been up to a million tests a day to tell you exactly where the problem was bad and say, OK, this city does not need to go into any sort of lockdown, whereas, you know, New York City in the beginning needs to go into lockdown. And now that you have to prevent people from traveling out of New York City to Florida and to their vacation homes and everything in order to prevent them from spreading the virus. But we didn't we didn't have the test to allow us to do that. So we didn't do it. Uh, so you mentioned Germany. Uh, I know you've traveled everywhere, reported from every continent, except maybe Antarctica. I've never been to Germany, actually. Oh, you've never been to Germany, but you've really? been to yeah. you've been to countries. I've been to, I've been to Rwanda four times. I've been to Romania multiple times. But for some reason, even though I was in the Paris Bureau for a while, I'd never reported in Germany because we had a Germany Bureau and they were busy and I was mostly covering Eastern Europe and Africa at the time. But as you compare uh, American everything, response, messaging, just the comportment of the public. I know that you had a clear-eyed view about the challenges of this country versus other countries and the resources, you know, speaking of Rwanda, but did the uh, behavior and the actual actions that the country and your countrymen took during the pandemic cause you any special despair? I was horrified from the beginning. I was horrified when those poor passengers from the 
from the Diamond Princess were not allowed to get off, you know, fly back to the United States and, and recuperate at a uh, defunct military base in Addison, Alabama. The town said, stay out. And I thought, geez, you know, these are fellow American citizens are coming back. You know, they're not a danger to you if they're sitting on the military base in isolation, you know, and the and the threat of infection will be over soon. But no, I mean, no, I was extremely disappointed in how this in country behaved. And, and unfortunately, the bad leadership came from the top. You know, the sort of ignore the science, you know, they're, it's just, it's a, it's a hoax meant to keep me out of office. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a ploy to push this country into recession. It's, you know, it's meant to drive the stock market down and make me look bad, all that resistance. So some countries did very well and some countries did, did poorly. And it, and to try to put your finger on it exactly is very tough because obviously the Asian countries did extremely well. And some of that was they had no hesitation with masking from the very beginning. And they had been through the experience of SARS-1. You know, many people died in many countries back in 2003, 2004 from, from SARS-1. And they'd also had several scares with avian flu. So wearing masks and preparing and also cutting off flights and things to, you know, to island countries like like uh, Taiwan and stuff was was easy to do. Um you know, some of these countries were were more autocratic than others, but also countries like New Zealand and Australia did extremely well against the virus. Now, they're helped by the fact that they're islands and far away from other, other people. I thought Canada and Germany were the two best examples of how we might have handled it well, because they both are large, wealthy countries. They both are democracies. They both have a tradition of freedom of speech. They both have right-wing movements and anti-vaccine movements going on. But they're their leaders were just much calmer and much more inclined to look at the data in order to give instructions. You know, they backed the vaccines from the beginning instead of resisting them. They and they and they backed uh, isolation even in the face of protests. They didn't go encourage people to you know invade the Michigan State House or anything like that. So, and and if you notice the ultimately the per capita death rates, ours probably should have fallen between Germany and and Canada in my estimation because. Germany got hit earlier. The virus made its way out of China to Iran, then to northern Italy, from there into Germany. And so they had less warning than we did. Uh, we were here a little bit later. Canada had more warning than we did. So had, had we all had the same, but instead, um, Germany's per capita death rate is half of ours and Canada's cap per capita death rate is closer to a third of ours. Um, they just did much better on on all fronts, both on, on protecting themselves before the vaccines arrived and on vaccinating their people after the vaccines arrived. Right. So as you said, there are so many different explanations by, uh, about why a country might have done better or worse. But a through line, at least uh, when comparing similarly situated countries, from what I've seen, is this statistic about polling of trust in government and trust in authority. And that trust can be earned. That trust, as we see in some dictatorial states, can be compelled. But that seems to be very important. And so I come back to the despair that you had over America. I, I, I draw a distinction there. There are governments where there are autocracies like Cuba and China, where people may not have freedom of speech, may not have much of democracy at all, but they do tend to trust the government on health issues. Um, both those countries deliver on health. Um, and, and so there are countries like ours where people do have freedom of speech and, and democracy, but we don't have a lot of trust in government on, on the health issue because we've got the most expensive healthcare in the world. Lots of people are uninsured. Where Congress is totally enthralled to the pharmaceutical lobby, and everybody knows that we have these ridiculously high prices. So 
we as a people do not have very high trust in government on the issue of health. And I think that's the crucial. It's, it's not just trust in general. It's trust about, does the government care whether I live or die? And tomorrow, Donald McNeil Jr. will be back to talk about the still confusing times around COVID, around reviews, around masking, and around public health in general. Stay tuned for part two with Donald McNeil Jr. And now the spiel. The expulsion of two members of the Tennessee House of Representatives was a total overreaction to their breaking rules of decorum. I think it will be self-correcting because the overreaction has engendered an overwhelming reaction, which saw the move become front page news, the kind of development that is known in places where the only time they think about Nashville is when they listen to country music, and the only time they think about Knoxville is when the guy from Jackass gets kicked in the nuts. Reactions and overreactions stimulate the central nervous system and make for drama and outrage. Here was Brittany Packnett on MSNBC. So really the question that I have and that I heard others in that chamber ask, that I heard the Tennessee Three ask is, why are you not outraged? Why is your concern decorum instead of the life of innocent children? Why is your outrage not palpable? Why were you not here in the well with us? We should all be outraged that there's a clear solution to diminish gun, to diminish gun violence and mass shootings in this country by banning assault weapons and not only does the GOP across the country refuse to do that, they stand in active way of that happening. Well, there is no clear or easy solution. A ban on assault weapons, which I've endorsed, is hard to get right, but it's still worth pursuing in that it can have a small effect on the types of mass murders that appall us most. My vote would be to pass a semi-automatic weapons ban. My vote would, of course, be, if not to pass it, then at least to debate it, but even debate was stymied in the Tennessee House as former and likely soon to be reinstated future Representative Justin Pearson explained during his expulsion hearing. Today was the first day in three, about two months that I've been here that there has been actual debate on the House floor. This is the first day where the Speaker hasn't ignored hands of Democratic members. This is the first day where everyone who wanted to say something doing welcoming and honoring as we wanted to do on that Thursday where I walked to this well had an opportunity to do so. This is the first time where the question wasn't called by my colleagues and the Republican Party almost immediately after something was brought up. This was the first day that I've seen something that was a semblance of democracy even on a day that seems to be so filled with anti-democratic operations. The point is a fair one in making the case about why the extraordinary decorum-breaking actions of the three representatives came to be. If you don't just have the votes to defeat a minority, but you use those votes to enforce rules to silence the minority, well, those voices are going to find a way to make themselves heard. But other defenders of the three go much further than I do. I say I agree with them on policy, can understand their frustration in procedure, and I also say I blame Republicans for not just excessively punishing them, but for also breaking their own rules. I also blame Republicans for creating new rules to suppress debate and dissent. All of that. But you heard among the defenders of what were called the Tennessee Three, kind of grandiosely, especially since one of them got off, but it does rhyme, but what you heard were a lot of claims that went further than the ones I just articulated. You heard many 
assertions that the real policy preferences of the people of Tennessee are for what the policy preferences of Justin Jones and Pearson are. That is not true. You heard that if Tennessee voters were allowed to accurately get their policy preferences passed into law, they would get a ban on assault weapons, one like PACnet was arguing for. They would not. You heard that Tennessee is being unfairly represented on those issues. Here was Daniela Gibbs-Ledger of the Center for American Progress on CNN explaining why you can't just hope to vote your way to progress in a state like Tennessee. When you gerrymander the state within an inch of its life, it's hard to say get out and vote. And here is Chuck Todd from Meet the Press putting numbers on the general explanation of gerrymandering as thwarting the people's true will. Let's be honest, 30 years of aggressive gerrymandering have likely brought us to this moment. In Tennessee, Trump won over 60% of the vote, but Republicans make up more than 75% of the state house. Half of those Republicans didn't face any opposition in 2022, not even from their own party. That sounds bad, but it's not, not really. If you have a 60-40 split in the electorate and that split is evenly distributed among congressional districts, you'd actually get all your representatives from the 60, I mean, you could take that so far, 50.1% split logically would have the same effect. But populations aren't evenly distributed. But it is true that once you start getting to outsized numbers in terms of registration or policy preferences, you also get outsized numbers in the winner-take-all system, i.e. the non-parliamentary system that we have. Ohio, Wisconsin, Florida, those really are you know, slightly red to very purple states with very red legislatures, thanks to gerrymandering. Tennessee does gerrymander. The experts say they gerrymander a bit. They're not one of the worst gerrymandering states. Tennessee's House is 75% Republican. And as you heard, the state only voted 60% with Trump. But California voted 63% with Biden. Their Senate is 32 out of 40 Democrat. That's 80% Democrat. Massachusetts voted 65% with Biden. Their House is 82% Democrat. Their Senate is 92% Democrat. Yeah, Massachusetts, there's some pro-democratic gerrymandering. Not in California, they use an independent commission to draw districts. The point is that the policies enacted by the Tennessee State House might be bad, wrong, counterproductive, or worthy of outrage, but they are not undemocratic. Squelching debate is democratic. Punishing rule breakers with excommunication is at least illiberal. But this idea that just because the Justins were subject to injustice, and they were, it means that all of their agenda is, even if right and worth pursuing by any means necessary, but that their agenda is a true reflection of the will of the voters of their state, that is, in a word, incorrect. Another interesting fact in considering how much democracy was at stake is that the voters of the two districts that the two Justins represent have been disenfranchised. This is why I'm very cautious about knee-jerk calls for resignation or disqualification of elected officials when elections are usually the better remedy. Madison Cawthorn, Ralph Northam, two elected politicians who fall within that camp. And I said, in both cases, don't kick them out of office, don't disqualify them for serving again. Just vote against them if you want. But consider the 68,000 citizens that Justin Pearson represents. The New York Times called his one electoral victory a landslide, but he actually received only 1,235 votes in the one election that put him in office. At 52% of the vote, it was 
956 votes more than the next closest vote getter. It was a fractured field, but it's still a minuscule total to have become one of the most famous faces in electoral politics over the last couple days. I don't blame Justin Pearson. He did what he needed to do to win a special election that was destined to have low turnout. And this phenomenon, people not voting in house elections, small elections, special elections, that is not specific to Pearson or in any way his fault. But so often our elected officials claim great mandates when in fact a minuscule percent of their actual constituents have used their franchise to endorse the candidate or the candidate's agenda. In Pearson's case, it was less than 2% of the electorate. Today, Jones is set to be reinstated by the Nashville County Commission. That vote will happen after I stop talking, not because of, just coincidentally. The Nashville County Commission, by the way, is itself a victim of Republican overreach. The state assembly voted to have its number of members. In Shelby County, which includes Memphis, where Justin Pearson serves, the county commission could vote and meet next Wednesday. The Republicans in Tennessee, who have no discernible backing nationwide, have certainly breathed into being a cause, and they have created two stars. Have they set back their agenda of laissez-faire gun rules? They have not gone that far. Because that is still, overwhelmingly in Tennessee, the will of the people. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pasquez is the vice president of philanthropy for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Peru, do Peru. And thanks for listening. And as you heard, the state only voted 60% with Trump. With Trump? 